I'm going to begin uh, in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. I'm sorry, not Habakkuk, Haggai, chapter 2. If you were with us last week, you may remember that we started a series that uh, uh, we've entitled The Glory of the Lord. And we uh, last Sunday we read through a lot of scriptures, certainly not all, but a lot of scriptures that, uh, that the Bible has to say or that refer to the glory of God and different things. I'm going to read some of those this morning, not all of them, but I'm going to pick out several ones and, and, uh, and remind you. But uh, to begin with, I want to start in Haggai chapter 2 where God is speaking of the end times, and He said, And I will shake all nations. This is verse 7, Haggai chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. He said, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. The Bible says, uh, Paul said it this way, he said, The whole earth is groaning and travailing in birth, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, what he's talking about there is he's talking about Jesus' return. He's talking about the change that takes place when Jesus comes back for the church. The Bible says we'll be caught up into the air, and, uh, and it says that we'll be changed in, a twinkle, in the twinkling of an eye, literally, quicker than you can blink. We will receive our redeemed bodies. Now, our spirits are already redeemed. The Bible says we're redeemed from the curse of the law, we're redeemed from spiritual death, we're redeemed from poverty, and we're redeemed from sickness, according to what the Bible says. But you know as well as I know that there's still a sin inclination. I, I really hesitate to call it a sin nature because your nature is the nature of God. You're not, you don't have dual natures. When you're born again, you become, the, you become born of the nature of God. So you don't have a sin nature in you or about you. But you do have an inclination in your flesh to sin. It's not your nature. See, so many times when we stumble and fall, the devil will say, well, that's the real you. No, that's not the real you. The real you is the man on the inside that's born again and made righteous by the blood of Jesus. That's the real you. He doesn't want you to know that's the real you. And so he keeps telling you that the mistakes you make, that's the real you. But it's not. It's just the nature or the, the I'm sorry, I'm so, the church world is so used to using that term that I sometimes slip up and use it too. It's the inclination that your flesh has to sin. But that's not you. So here where it says that, uh, that it's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, our bodies are going to be redeemed. Won't that be a great day when there will be no inclination in your flesh to sin again? The only reason you sin is because of the inclination in your flesh to sin and your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions joins in with that inclination. But you don't sp sin from your spirit. Your spirit is made new. It's made perfect in the image of God. So where the Bible says that we are redeemed, it means that our bodies will be redeemed. We will receive a body, a changed, transfigured body that has no trace and no experience with sin whatsoever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So here where it says the desire of all nations shall come, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the point in time that Jesus comes back. So it's clearly talking about the end, the end of the church age. Not the end of the world, but the end of the church age. So it says, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. Notice the connection between shaking all nations and Jesus' return. Anybody see anything being shaken today? And everybody is shaking. Every nation seems to be shaking. You find a nation that's not being shaken, and they're the exceptions. People are being, nations are being shaken economically. They're being shaken politically. They're being shaken spiritually. They're being shaken in every way, just about every way you can imagine. I don't know if you know this or not, but what people call global warming is the nations being shaken. Now, don't fall for the political end of that, but there is a Bible side to that.
Okay. So he says, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. Thank God it's coming toward the end. Folks, you need to realize the day and the, the times that we live in. It's too late to play games as the church. Let me say that again. It's too late for the church to play games. We need to ch- decide as the people of God, we need to decide, is the Bible true or is it not? If it's true, we need to live by it. If it's not true, we need to throw it away and enjoy the time we have left before the world comes apart. Because left on its own, the world will come apart. Everybody can see that. Thank God the Bible's true. So let's live by it. I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come. Now what is in connection with the last days, end time shaking, and the return of Jesus? And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now at the time that this is spoken of, and I've referred to this before, but I think it bears repetition. Even if you did hear it before, you need to hear it again. There are three temples in the Old Testament. First there was Solomon's temple. It was filled with glory. Second was this temple, it's called the second temple. It's being rebuilt after Israel has disobeyed God and their enemies have taken away the, the, the gold elements and the, the precious things that were sanctified before God. Now they're trying to rebuild the temple coming out of captivity. This is the point where the Bible, where God speaks these words. He said, I will fill this house with glory. We would therefore be inclined to think that he's saying, I'll fill the second temple with glory too. The problem is we've got the historical record. And the the Bible record as well as history tells us that when the second temple was dedicated, the people that were still old enough to have seen the first temple now see the second temple dedicated. They cry and say, this is nothing. So he can't be talking about filling the second temple with glory. Now, the third temple was uh, uh, Herod's temple. That's the one that was in place when Jesus went through and the disciples were all impressed with the buildings. Jesus wasn't. He said there won't be one stone left upon another in this place. He, did, he wasn't impressed with that at all because it was not built for the glory of God. Herod built it for his own glory. So it served the purpose of the sacrifices and so forth, but it had nothing to do with being dedicated to God. It had nothing to do with the glory of God. So if he's saying, I'll fill this house with glory, but he's not talking about the second temple, what is he talking about? Well, the third temple wasn't filled with the glory of God. Only the first one was. Of the three, only the first, Solomon's temple was filled with the glory of God. Then what is he talking about filling this house? He's talking about the church. God's original plan was to dwell within people, not in buildings. So he's saying in the end, he's saying there'll be a shaking, an end time shaking of all nations. He said the connection is Jesus will come. The desire of all nations shall come. That's Jesus coming back. That's what the earth is groaning for. Then he says, and I'll fill the house, this house, the church with glory, saith the Lord. Thank God we have a promise of glory. Then he goes further and says in verse 8, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now you decide for yourself what, what the connection there is, but God is saying that silver and gold is connected with glory. Now I know a lot of people preach against silver and gold and they say God's not happy with you if you've got a lot of money and, and, uh, and, and if, you, if you have money then, then that just makes people greedy and stuff like that. Folks, I want you to understand something. God's the creator of the earth. He's the creator of the universe. And when the time came for him to have a house built for himself, he did not say, go get a couple of sticks of wood and lean them up together and we'll call that my house. No, he gave specific instruction. Even the things that were wood, he said, overlay them with gold. 
Now, I think that has a spiritual significance, a greater spiritual significance than it has a natural or a material significance. And that is, that's how God sees you. You're his house now. He sees you as precious and more precious than silver and gold. But still, you can't get away from the fact that God said the connection with the last days has something to do with silver and gold. You put your own interpretation on that. I I know what, (laughs) I'm satisfied with what it means. But you put your own interpretation on that. I believe there's going to be an end time release of finances for the people who are faithful to obey God with what they have. When the world goes down economically, the doers of the word, those that act on and live by the word of God and act according to their, to what the Bible says to do with their finances will always be provided for. David said, I was once young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging bread until the end time comes. No. The righteous aren't going to be forsaken even when the worlds are being shaken economically. So please understand, I'm not saying put your trust in silver and gold, but there's something about silver and gold in the end. Then he goes further in verse 9. Sandwiches it. He sandwiches silver and gold right in between glory. Verse 9. He said, and the glory of this latter house, talking about the church, shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Turn back with me to Second Chronicles chapter 5. Now, the former he's talking about has to be Solomon's temple. Because at this point in time, the second temple is just being rebuilt. So he's got to be talking about Solomon's temple. So let's look at the glory of Solomon's temple. Now, to give you a little background on this. When David became king of Israel, David was a man after God's own heart, even though he messed up. Made a lot of mistakes, made mistakes with his children, made mistakes with Bathsheba and and killed her husband, did all kinds of things wrong. But he was still a man after God's own heart. And David always wanted to build God a house. Before then, they had the tabernacle of the wilderness. You remember God gave Moses instruction of what to do and how to fashion the, 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 uh, the pieces of furniture and the, the Ark of the Covenant and different things like that. There were, there were specific instructions made about the, the coverings, you know, the wool coverings and things like that that made the tent, uh, um, that was the fabric of the tent that, that it was housed in and, and specific instructions about how it was to be carried and all those things. But it was portable. But once God gave Israel a homeland what we know of as the nation of Israel today. When God gave Israel a home, a geographic location, that's when the people of God, specifically David, started asking God and seeking after him to build a temple. Well, David had to defeat the enemies. And so God told David, you're a man of war, out of necessity, by the will of God. He said, but you're a man of war, so you can't build my temple. He said, but I'll let your your son do it. That was Solomon. Solomon was the man of peace. Now, the reason Solomon was able to enjoy peace was because David had defeated all the enemies. Folks need to understand, peace does not come through compromise. Peace comes through defeating your enemies. You're never going to have peace in your life, in your Christian walk, until you take on the battles that the enemy brings against you and defeat him. That's when peace comes. Peace doesn't come through treaties. Peace comes through victories. So Solomon now builds the temple. David, since he knew he wasn't going to be able to build it, he just set aside money for it. And the the amounts of money that David and his generals and his captains and different guys set apart in today's money is staggering. 
billions of dollars. So the time comes for for Solomon, King Solomon, to build the temple. They did it in a very specific way. The Bible says there was never the sound of uh, the noise of hammer or, or anything. They, they, they would build it off-site, bring it together, and assemble it. And it was built in such an intricate manner that nobody even had to hammer a nail to put things together. And when the time came for the temple to be dedicated, the Bible tells us about this in Second Chronicles chapter 5, beginning in verse... Well, let's start reading in verse 11. It says, And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. In other words, this was a special situation as they would normally take turns and do things in a rotating event. Now everybody's doing it all together. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Heman, and of Jedithan, with their sons and their brethren. These are all the tribes that were given to songs and, and the ones that were the worship leaders, basically. Being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, when they all stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets, it came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments and music, and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever, that then... Everybody say then. That then, when all the preparation was made, and this is not just the priest doing the preparation. This is the preparation for the temple being built. This is the preparation for the trumpets, trumpeters. They, I mean, they've got this thing planned. They didn't get to the day of dedication and say, okay, what do you think we ought to do? They've got this thing planned way in advance. Everybody's looking forward to it. Everybody is in one, has the same mind about the importance of and the significance of the dedication of the temple. Then when they began to sing and to praise... When they began to sing, for the Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever, that then the house was filled with the cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister. That means stand upright. That means everybody's falling down. They could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Now, folks, i I, I, I got to be real careful about this. But I still got to say what's true. You know, nowadays it's, there's so many things you get in trouble for saying. For example, the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. It's not a hate crime to say so. Boy, some people want to make it one. Oh, you're judging. Well, no, actually the Bible does that. We're just saying what it says. Oh, but that means you're against homosexuals. No, I'm not. I'm not against homosexuals anymore than I'm against adulterers. Adultery is sin too. But I don't think adulterers should be made a special class of people and have certain rights. Do you? Adultery is sin just like homosexuality is sin, just like lying is sin. Oh, but you're saying homosexuals won't make it to heaven. No, folks, if that were the truth, liars wouldn't make it to heaven. Do you know how few people would make it to heaven? <laughs> God would be sitting up there with just me and nobody else. What well, you know... <laughs> Well, okay, maybe not. We're not talking about things that keep you out of heaven. We're talking about right and wrong. Why is it wrong to say what's wrong nowadays? Well, it's not. Okay, back to the glory of the Lord. 
It says when they were in one accord, when they were of the same mind, when they were of the same purpose. And they began to sing and to praise. And they, it tells us specifically what they sang. For the Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. That Then the house was filled with a cloud, even the glory of the Lord. That's got to be something more than they just decided to go to church together. I mean, we decided to go to church together today, didn't we? Is every time somebody decides to go to church together, does that make the glory of the Lord present? No. Well, then there's got to be something different about this that we either don't understand or that we're not believing for. I say we, meaning the church world at large. We see more than our share. Well, that's not a good way to say it. We see the glory of the Lord frequently in in this church. One of the reasons is because we pray things related to it. But I don't believe the church world is seeing near the glory of the Lord that we need to or should or that God wants us to. The Bible says concerning the end, it says the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Well, I wouldn't consider that to be true today. Would you? I don't believe that's been fulfilled yet. This has got to mean more than they just decided to sing the same song. This has got to be more than that. Now, the Bible says, I, I said that I was going to read some scripture, but I'm not. It's, uh, uh, at least I don't think I am. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm, uh, I'm going to refer to some things and let you look them up if you want to. But the Bible speaks of the glory of the Lord in a lot of different ways. It speaks of the cloud frequently. It speaks of the cloud overshadowing the glory of the Lord. In other words, it means the glory of the Lord inside the cloud. Then it speaks of brightness. In one place it speaks of the, of the, 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 like a rainbow. Ezekiel talked about it as a rainbow. Over and over and over again, it speaks of the glory of the Lord causing people to not be able to stand or not be able to enter the place where the glory is manifest. Paul talked about the glory of the Lord. He talked about on the road to Damascus. He said there was a light that shined round about him and his company that was brighter than the noonday sun. Well, it was noon. And there's a, a light that's brighter than the sun that shines around about him. What's he talking about? He's talking about the glory of the Lord. He goes further and in his own testimony, Acts chapter 22, he says that he couldn't see for the glory of that light. Some folks in the church, bless their heart, they think that Paul got, was blind or blinded because of sickness and disease, and it created some illness that he carried the rest of, throughout the rest of his life. Well, folks, the Bible says that when we leave this earth, we enter into glory. Heaven is considered glory. Is everybody going to be sick there? Well, no, the Bible says nobody's sick there. To think that Paul, the light that shined around about Paul caused him to be sick is ridiculous. To think that his thorn in the flesh was as a result of something that God had planned for him, God showed him his glory. It's ridiculous to think so. But that doesn't keep a lot of people from doing it. Seems like the more letters some people have behind their name, the more they think so. <laughs> Education is not always a good thing, folks. You can educate yourself right out of the things of God. So the Bible talks about brightness. It talks about glory. It talks about glistening. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 9. Let me show you something else about this. Here's an example or the story of where Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, or before three of his disciples. And notice how it refers to it. We'll start reading in verse 28. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. 
And behold, there have talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. What does that mean? That means they're shining too. Who appeared in glory and spake of his decease. That means Jesus' death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. These guys take naps at the wrong time, I'm telling you. <laughs> but i tell you what else it shows you. It shows you what the devil will try to do to keep you out of the experiences with God. Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Folks, I think a lot of people fall into that category. They don't know what they're saying. Now, I understand his excitement. Wow, this was great. Let's don't leave. I feel that way when the glory of God manifests too, don't you? Well, let's don't leave. But it's not meant to stay in the middle of. It's meant to use and take with you. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And as he feared, they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Now, what does it say when the cloud was passed then he was alone. That means there was this cloud, this fog, this smoke-looking thing, and that's the way. Excuse me. That's the way the Bible refers to it in the Old Testament over and over again. It speaks of a, a, a cloud. It speaks of a fog. It speaks of smoke. It speaks of brightness. It speaks of glistening. It uses all these different terms: brightness, even a rainbow in one place, in Ezekiel. It speaks of all these different things referring to the cloud. Well, what it's telling us is when the cloud overshadowed them, Moses and Elijah disappeared, but the disciples, Peter, James, and John, couldn't see anybody, and so they didn't see the, where they went. Then when the cloud lifts, they can see again, and there's Jesus. You know what it's like being in the fog. The heavier the fog is, you can't see some things right in front of your face. But then as the cloud, as the fog begins to lift or burn off, then you can see a little bit further and a little bit further, and finally you can see clearly. Apparently, that's the way the glory of God is in many cases. In this case, that seems to be what it's referring to. First experience I had with the glory of God was in November the 22nd in 1962. I was three days short of my seventh birthday. Now, for about a week, uh, well, not, a little bit more than a week, eight or nine days, maybe ten, I'm not sure exactly. But for a few days prior to that point in time, I was aware of the fact that I needed to accept Jesus into my heart. Now, I knew Jesus. I talked with Jesus. I remember as a kid talking to Jesus. I'd get in the bathtub and talk to Jesus. He talked back. That sounds strange to some people. It was just commonplace to me. I didn't have an imaginary friend. I had Jesus. Well, what the, I grew up in a Baptist church, Southern Baptist church. And uh, the Southern Baptists, I found out later, didn't know at the time, talk about the age of accountability. And that's the age where everybody comes to where you know the difference between right and wrong. You, you come to understand something about accepting. Uh, if, you, if you've been taught about the things of, of the Lord, then you know something about accepting Jesus or rejecting him as, as an individual. Well, the Baptist church always made you walk down to the front. If you wanted to accept Jesus into your heart, you had to walk down to the front. That scared me as a six-year-old kid. That scared me. I didn't want to walk down to the front. Those people looked mean. <laughs> These deacons that would stand up there waiting for you to come, man, looked like they were out to get you. 
I didn't want to go down there with those people. And so I didn't do anything about it. Didn't tell anybody anything about it. And so for about eight or nine days, something changed on the inside of me. The light that I had on the inside before, knowing Jesus, talking to Jesus, now all of a sudden that light's gone. I'm talking to him and he's not answering. I died spiritually. If you look back at what Paul said, writing to the Romans, Paul said, I was alive without the law once, but when the law came, sin revived and I died. We can't be talking about physical death. He didn't die physically. How did he die? He died spiritually. So what he's saying is, I was alive, spiritually alive, before I found out about the law, meaning right and wrong. But when I found out about right and wrong, I couldn't do right, and so that's when I died. That's the way it works for everybody. In tragedy situations where babies die and some people have the, the nerve to stand up and say, well, you know, we don't know where this child is. That's ridiculous. Every child is alive unto God when they're born into this earth. God's the father of spirits. God can never be the father of a dead spirit. But when that knowledge of right and wrong comes, when that age of accountability is reached, and I don't think that's a numerical age. I think it's different for different people based on emotional maturity or, or information. Or I don't know, whatever else. But when that age of accountability comes, then we have to make a decision for ourselves. I knew Jesus. I was talking to Jesus. I didn't know anything about God, but I knew he was good. I hadn't been taught that he was good. Baptists didn't find that out until much later. But I knew he was good. I just knew on the inside of me. I knew he was good. I knew from talking to him. But when that light went out, man, it scared me. I, I wouldn't have known the term lost if you had asked me about it, but I, I knew I was lost. I didn't know what that meant, but man, there's, there's, there's darkness on the inside now. It's black. Well, I told my mother about it on November the 22nd. She said, oh, Mike, you don't have to go down to the front of the church to get saved. Yeah, we can do that right here. And I, I cried and I said, you, we can? Mom, we can? She said, yeah, let's just kneel down here right by the bed. So we did, knelt down by the bed. She, thank God she knew how to get somebody saved. She led me in a little prayer. She said, just say something like this. I asked Jesus into my heart and all of a sudden things changed. Now she wrote down some things. Now I remember that day or I remember some things about that day. I, I should qualify that. She wrote down some things that, sh that uh, she said that I said and I don't remember saying them. But I do remember saying one thing. I remember one thing very specifically, and I remember saying one thing, and that was after we finished praying and I said amen, I said, Mom, it's all light on the inside now. Now, what is that? That's the glory of God. Turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1. Oh, there's so many things I want to tell you about the glory of God. There's so many things I think God wants to do in these last days relative to the glory of God. Notice in Colossians chapter 1, notice in verse, uh, let's start in verse 25. Paul talking about himself, he says, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you. I've got a dispensation of God, not for me, but for you. That's what he's saying. For what purpose? To fulfill the word of God. Actually, this word fulfill is the word complete. Without Paul's revelation, we wouldn't have the completeness of who we are in Christ. Without Paul's revelation, John wouldn't have been able to say that anybody that adds to this is cursed. Paul realizes his purpose. He says, I'm here to complete the word of God. That must have been part of what Jesus referred, uh, revealed to him. 
Then he goes further and he says this, even this mystery, which was hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints. So he's saying, uh, you know what a mystery is? A mystery is something you don't fully understand. He's saying, so there was something we didn't fully understand, but now has been revealed. People talk about the mysteries of God. So many things are mysteries to people because they won't study the Word. Most of the mysteries of God are revealed in the Word. Now, some things aren't. It's a mystery when Jesus is going to return. No man knows the day or the hour. But it's not a mystery that he's coming. So he said, even the mystery which has been hid from the ages and generations, from generations, but, is made, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom, his saints, to whom God would make known. I get so tired of people saying, well, you just never know about God. Are you kidding? Everything about the Bible is so you can know. Let me say it this way. It's, God, it's not God's fault if Christians are stupid. Now, I know that may not be the most polite way to say it, but it kind of gets the point across, doesn't it? And too many Christians are stupid when it comes to knowing the things of God. But he gave you the tools. He gave you everything you need to know about him, about his purpose, and about who you are. To whom God would make known to the saints. In other words, God has made known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the mystery? What are the riches of this glory, of the riches of this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, folks, please understand, he's not saying Christ in you is the hope that you'll have glory someday. He's saying Christ in you is the hope of glory now. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus was transfigured and his raiment began to, to, to glisten and, uh, and he was transfigured in front of everybody, is that something that God did that Jesus wasn't normally? Or did they just see him the way that he really was? See, one of the things that, that I think we miss as the body of Christ is we fail to recognize that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That's what the Bible says raised Jesus up as being the spirit of glory. In other words, the spirit of glory is the spirit of God. And you've got him because you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. You may have him in fuller measure when you make Jesus or when you uh, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Same Spirit, just greater measure. Same Holy Ghost. There's not Holy. The Holy Ghost is not twins. Same Spirit, just in different measure. So when Jesus appeared before the, was transfigured before the apostles, or Peter, James, and John, at least, when he was transfigured, was that not his normal state? Well, no, that was his normal state. It was just a state that he was not normally seen in because of the limitations of the flesh. Well, then what do you really look like? I mean, we see each other through the eyes of the flesh, but what do you really look like? If Christ in you is the hope of glory, the same hope of glory, you've got the same spirit of glory in you that raised Jesus from the dead, what do you look like? We get so accustomed to looking at ourselves through the filter of our mistakes, through the filter of our sins and our shortcomings, that we think, well, that's who we really look like. That's who God sees. Uh-uh. God sees you just like Jesus was transfigured before the apostles. 
And when Peter spoke up and said, oh, let's stay here. Let's leave it just like this in the flesh. That's when the spirit of, that's when the, the presence of God overshadowed them. The cloud overshadowed them and God spoke up and said, shut up, listen to my son. In other words, quit trying to hang on to it in the flesh. Realize that the spirit realm that you can't see is more real than what you can. Turn with me to uh, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Bible talks about Moses speaking face to face with God. You remember when Moses first went to the, um, uh, up into to Mount Zion? The Bible says that, uh, that that was such an experience that nobody thought he'd be able to live through it. There were thunderings and lightnings. There were earthquakes. There were all kinds of things that were taking place. So much so that, that the people feared not only for Moses' life, but they knew that if even an animal walked up onto that mountain or touched you know, anything beyond the perimeter that was, uh, that was you know, cordoned off, they had a, a stone wall around it. If anything crossed that stone barrier, then they died. Well, the people of Israel are looking up at the mountain and they're thinking, nobody can live through this. And so they start making another plan. That's when they come up with the golden calf. They go to Aaron and say, you know, okay, Moses is dead. Clearly he's dead. Look at all that stuff going on. And so Aaron says, yeah, this is really not part of the plan. But, um, okay, we're, now we don't have Moses. I know. Let's make a golden calf. Well, of course that's what you do. Whenever there's trouble, you make a golden calf. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Moses comes down from the mountain and sees what's going on. And God even tells him before he goes. He said, you're going to have to get down there. Now, I've given you the, the, the Ten Commandments. I've carved out, you know, God wrote in stone. Think about this, folks. Think about the supernatural nature of the Word of God. God wrote in stone. There was no such thing as a laser back then. Maybe God is a laser. I don't know. But God wrote in stone tablets. Gives Moses the law of God. Moses is coming down or ready to come down the mountain. And God says, ah, now there's a problem down below. You're going to have to get down there. The people have already rebelled. They've already sinned. And Moses is thinking, you've got to be kidding. This is the greatest experience anybody has ever had. This is the greatest experience man has ever, ever had in the history of the world. They have an opportunity to partake of this and they're sinning against you. God says, yeah, yeah, you're going to have to go take care of this. Moses goes down and it's worse than he must have imagined because he takes the tablets of stone as precious and as sacred as they are and he breaks them on the way down. I can't imagine how mad he must have been to have broken those things. I'd been willing to break some of the people. But this? Moses watched him carve them. And he breaks them. I, I, there has to be a symbolic significance to this. It has to be the symbol of the people breaking the law of God. And so Moses, as his representative, broke the stone tablets. Not that he was doing it himself, but because of the people. Because God didn't get mad at him about the tablets. He says, well, okay, we're going to have to replace those. So he gives him another set. That must be some copy machine God's got in heaven. <laughs> So he didn't get mad at Moses for breaking them, so it had to be on the behalf of the people. It had to be representative of the people's sin and the people's rebellion. 
But Moses comes down from the mountain, and Moses just gets on to the people. He asks Aaron, he said, where did this golden calf come from? And Aaron explains what happened. He says, the people just brought their gold and silver. We threw it into the fire, and this calf appears. We <laughs> Had to be God. Moses grinds this thing up. He commands it to be ground up in powder and makes the people drink it. He pours it in water and makes the people drink it. Then the people look at Moses and they say, Moses, could you put a bag on your head? <laughs> Moses says, what are you talking about? And everybody's saying, your face is shining. He didn't know. Now, folks, here's what I want you to get to. Moses did not know. He was not aware that the, of the effect that, it, that being in the glory of God, the presence of God, had upon his body. But other people saw it. People that were willing to rebel against God saw it. They recognized it. Now, let me show you something else about Moses. Did you find Exodus chapter 33 yet? Exodus 33. Let's see... Where do we want to start reading in this? I'm just going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying unto thy seed I will give thee. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite, the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite unto a land flowing with milk and honey. He's talking about the land of Canaan. Talking about the promised land. They haven't yet gone and, and rebelled against God there yet. So he's sending them there the first time. Unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of you, for you are a stiff-necked people, lest I consume you in the way. Folks, you know the Bible says the mercy of the Lord endures forever. There is a point where somebody can reject until God says let them alone. In the Old Testament, God said of, uh, uh, concerning one of the tribes of Israel, He said, leave Ephraim alone. He's joined himself to his idols. That doesn't mean God's mercy gives up on you. That means God finally accepts your choice. People say, how could a loving God send people to help? He doesn't. He just honors your choice to go. You meaning, not you individually as Christians but meaning people that reject Jesus. He just honors their choice to go. And when the people heard these tidings, they mourned, and no man did put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out into the tabernacle of the congregation which was out without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out into the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And as it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. Notice the cloudy pillar. There's the glory of the Lord. Now let me explain some things. God is not saying, I'm going to wipe you out. He's saying, you're worthy of me wiping you out. And so what did he do? 
he gave Moses as the interceder or the intercessor, the one to go between and represent the people unto himself. That's the only reason that the people of Israel weren't destroyed in the wilderness, because they certainly deserved it by rebelling against God. Moses is a type of Jesus. Just like you and I deserved eternity in hell because of our wrongdoings. Thank God Jesus came. Thank God because of Jesus now, it's not based on what we deserve, it's based on what Jesus did. Quit looking at what you deserve. What God thought you deserved was Jesus. And the Bible says if God didn't withhold Jesus, His only Son, how would He withhold any other good thing here on the earth? See, some people say, well, I guess I just deserve to to not have healing. I deserve to be sick because of the life I've led. Well, no, God says you deserve Jesus, and since He didn't withhold Jesus from you, He wouldn't withhold healing from you. Well, I, I, I guess I just deserve to, to not ever make it financially and to lose my house and, and to just go down the tubes here because, you know, I, I, I wanted to serve God, but I just didn't do right. Well, no, God said you deserve Jesus. And since you deserve Jesus, you deserve the redemption from poverty. Oh, Pastor Mike, I just wish that was true. It is true. I wish you just chose to believe it. Because that's what it comes down to. That's exactly what it comes down to. Folks, everybody's talking about Obamacare. How about Jesus care? It's free, but it does cost you commitment through faith. It's already been paid for. So it goes further and tells us about, uh, about Moses... Let's see, where do we end up? Verse 9, And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. And the Lord spoke unto Moses face to face. I want you to get this. In the glory of God, you speak to God face to face. Can you see that? Please keep that in mind. It's only in the glory of the Lord that you speak with him face to face. Nobody else could do that, but Moses did because he was in the glory. He was in this cloud. Can you see that? everybody? I'm sorry for belaboring this, but it's really important for you to see. Do you understand that that's what it's saying? Okay. The Lord spoke unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. And Moses said unto the Lord, Joshua had enough sense to know where God was and stayed there. And Moses said unto the Lord, Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me, yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now let me explain what's what's taking place here. Moses reminds God of what he said. He puts God in remembrance. So when you talk face to face with God, when you're in the glory of the Lord, this is how it goes. You say, Lord, you said this. Now some people consider that arrogance. Some people on the outside will say, oh, those word of faith people, they're so arrogant to think that you can order God around. You're not ordering God around when you remind Him of what He said. God said in Isaiah chapter 43, I think it is, put me in remembrance. Folks, you get results when you put God in remembrance of what He said. Now, what does that presuppose? That presupposes that you know what He said. That means you have to know His Word 
first before you start talking to him. Now, what do we call talking to God? Prayer. That means if you want results in prayer, you're going to have to know what the Bible says that he said before you pray. So Moses says, now, Lord, you said this. You said that I'm supposed to bring up this people, but you haven't let me know whom you will send with me. You have no, told me who's going with me. I'm not willing to do this on my own. Moses was a real smart guy. He knew that he couldn't do the work that God gave him to do by himself. So he said, you told me that, that, that I'm supposed to do the work, but you haven't told me who you'd send with me. But you've also said, I know you by name, and then that I, thou, meaning Moses, hast found grace in my sight. In other words, he's saying, but you said that I know you. And you said I found grace in your sight, but you haven't let me know who's going to go with me. Yet you told me to do the work. In other words, there's a problem here. There's a problem that only you can fix. You're going to have to show me who's going to go too. I'm willing to go. But you're going to have to show me who's going to go too. Then he goes further. He says in verse 13, Now I pray thee, if I've found grace in your sight. In other words, if you told the truth, when you said I found grace in your sight. If I found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you. Now God said, I had already said, Moses knows me. Moses says, I don't know you enough. I like that attitude. You never know God enough. No matter how much you know him. No matter how much of the words you gain, knowledge of the words you gain, you're still never going to know enough. You ever find somebody that thinks they know everything about God and everything about the Word? Get away from that idiot as soon as you can. So Moses said, show me your way so I can know you better. I need to know more of you. That I may found grace in your sight and consider that this nation is thy people. Now that's a, if you just read through there without taking it apart, it gets a little confusing to us. In other words, he's saying the way that I find grace in your sight is to know you. So I need to know more of you so that I can have more grace in your sight. And then he says, now consider that these people are yours. They're not mine. You told me to bring them up, but you haven't told me who's going to go too. These are your people, not mine. They're not my problem. How many things that God told you to do that you're taking on as your own problem? It's not supposed to be yours. Folks, I find such great comfort in this. You get stories and reports about, well, this has happened to this person. This tragedy has taken place. This problem has arisen. Lord, these are your people. I mean, I'll do what I can, but these are your people. Don't you think for a minute that I'm going to worry about this. I can't be God for them. That's what Moses is saying. And he said, verse 14, here's the Lord answering back. Moses' whole problem is, his question is, you haven't shown me, told me who's going to go with me. Then the Lord says, answers back. Here's God speaking to him. and says, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. Now the word presence is interesting because it's... Uh, uh, oh, wait a minute, just clicked on the wrong thing. Let me see if I can get this. The word presence is a, is a, uh, generally means face. 
It, in the Hebrew, it means something like face. And it's translated a bunch of different ways. It's translated uh, 100, 1,131 times. It's translated before. So it could be translated, my before shall go before thee. Or my before shall go with thee. Another time it's translated, 328 times it's translated face. 63 times it's translated face is. 27 times it's translated from. And, and I'm not sure how many is translated presence. Let me see if I can get it. 76 times it's translated presence. In other words, it means before from the standpoint of in front of. God's saying something will go in front of you. He's saying, I'll cause something to go in front of you. Now, the something that he's talking about has got to be a spirit. So here where the presence of God is being spoken of, the face of God, he's saying, my face will go before thee. He's saying, I'll put something out in front of you. I'll put my spirit out in front of you. Now, the word, notice the last part of the verse, it says, and I'll give you rest. The word rest means settle down. So God's literally saying to Moses, my spirit will go with you so you can settle down. Now, Moses is going to encounter a lot of enemies. He's going to encounter a lot of trouble. He's going to have a lot of, a lot of backbiting, a lot of murmuring from the people. He's going to have all kinds of things that are going to threaten his life. There are all kinds of things that he's going to face. But God says, you can settle down in the middle of it because my spirit will be with you. Then Moses says, he answers him back. Now, remember, Moses is talking face to face. I know a lot of religious people don't like this idea of God talking to somebody like this or somebody talking back to God like this. Moses says, well, if your spirit does not go with me, carry us not up hence. In other words, he's saying, well, if your spirit doesn't go, I'm not going. That's pretty face to face, isn't it? I mean, that's talking pretty plain to God. And, of course, the next verse says, and lightning falls from heaven because of Moses' arrogance. Oh, that didn't happen? God doesn't have a problem with you talking face to face with him when you're basing your conversation on his word. And remember, it's only in the glory of the Lord that you can talk face to face with God. Keep that in mind. If Moses is not in this glory cloud, he can't have this conversation with God. But Moses is real clear about this. He says, well, look, I can't do this on my own. I guess he figured out when he parted the Red Sea that that wasn't really him doing it. <laughs> Even though everybody's saying, wow, Moses. Moses is saying, oh, dear Lord. I didn't do that. So he's got it figured out. He's, he's understanding very clearly. If God's not in this, I'm not going anywhere. Because I can't do this on my own. How many things can you not do on your own? Everything? Well, then shouldn't we be relying on the same Spirit of God? So Moses says, if your Spirit doesn't go, I'm not going. Uh, I wish I could figure out how to get this iPad to quit turning off. So Moses said, if your presence go not with me, carry us not up thence. For wherein shall it be known? In other words, Moses is saying, here's the problem. If your Spirit doesn't go, here's going to be the problem. For wherein shall it be known that here... That I and thy people have found grace in thy sight. Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Folks, there's so much in that verse of scripture you need to see and recognize. He's saying, I understand that it's only by your presence, your spirit, you going before us, that causes us to be different from anybody else on the earth, that causes us to be known as having found grace in your sight. If it's not for your presence, we're nothing. That's why I'm not moving without the Holy Ghost. 
There's so many different directions you could go here. You remember in Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. People get so aggravated with me because I won't move quick. I'm not going if the Holy Ghost doesn't tell me to go. People get aggravated with me because I won't go places they want me to go. If the Holy Ghost doesn't tell me to go, I'm not moving a peg. Because I know I'm where I'm supposed to be. And if He doesn't tell me to go somewhere else, it ain't happening. Oh, people get upset with that. They get so frustrated. Oh, but we need to make plans. Well, you go ahead and make your plans. I'll wait on the Holy Ghost. I used to get frustrated with Brother Hagen about that. Dad, we got to go. Dad, we got to go. He'd say, oh, you kids, just settle down. We can't settle down. We got to make plans. You, gotta, you don't understand. There are things that have to be done. Dad would say, well, I'm praying about it. What do you mean you're praying about it? We're ready to go. And so many times it turned out that if we had done what we thought we should have done, without getting direction from God like Brother Haken did, we would have messed up big time. He saved our bacon so many times when we were ready to go. We wanted to jump. We were filled with passion to do something. And we were zealous without knowledge. Brother Hagen wouldn't move. He wouldn't care who was pushing him. It didn't matter to him if everybody in town was trying to push him. He would not move a peg. I have finally learned that. Now, I haven't learned how not to be frustrated with people pushing you. I'm working on that part. But that's what Moses is saying. He's saying it's only the presence of God that separates us from anybody else. We'd be just like everybody else that doesn't have a chance if it's not for your presence. It's your presence that causes us to find grace in your sight when we wait on you. Do you recognize how many things the Bible says comes as a benefit of waiting on the Lord? It says, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall walk and not think. They shall run and not be weary. You know, most of our problem with getting caught up with, with doing too much in life is because we're not waiting on the Lord. We're not trusting in the Spirit of God to lead us to do things. We're just doing things. Many of those things might be good things to do. I know in ministry you can work yourself to death. Paul tells about Epaphroditus that did that very thing. He's doing good works. He's ministering to people. He's helping in Paul's company, but he worked himself nearly to death and would have died, Paul said, except the Lord had mercy on him. Apparently, Paul was able to stand in and say, I need this guy. And that was the only reason that he didn't die. He didn't work himself to death. But he pushed his body too far. You can work yourself to death doing good things, and God will welcome you into heaven and say, you didn't have to do it this way. Verse 17, And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. Now notice he's saying, God is saying this was Moses doing. Why? Because Moses started off reminding God of what he said. Here's something else about being in the glory of the Lord. When you're in the glory cloud, when you're in the presence of God, God honors your words. So he says, I will do this thing that thou hast spoken for. Thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And Moses said, I beseech thee, show me your glory. Now, what is he saying? If God's talking about, Moses first says, the problem is, you said I know you, you said I found grace in your sight, but you haven't told me who to go with or who's going to go with me. You told me what work to do. I don't have any doubt about the work that I'm supposed to do. You haven't told me who's going to go with me. And so he and God talk this over, and God says, okay, my presence will go. 
I'll set something out in front of you. My spirit will be set out in front of you, and I'll go. And Moses said, well, if that's not the way it's going to go, then I'm not going. You've got to be serious about this, Lord. I'm not playing over this. And he says, no, I'll, my spirit will go with you so you can settle down. And then he has this conversation with God, and finally, finally, Moses said, God answers and says, okay, I'll do these things, honor your words, I'll do this just like, like you said. And Moses says, show me your glory. At the point that God said, I will honor your words, Moses says, show me your glory. Now, what is he saying? He can't be changing subjects. Why would he be? The only thing that matters to Moses is who's going to go with me, who's going to equip me, who's going to help me get the work done to take care of your people, not mine, your people. When he says, show me your glory, he's got to be talking about the same presence that God said would go with him. Don't you think? So he says, show me your glory. Notice how God responds. Folks, I don't know about you, but I want to see the glory of God. I have seen the glory of God, but I'm not satisfied. I want to see more of it. And after I see more of it, I'm going to want to see more of it too, still. And I want to see more of the things that the glory of God will produce. Don't you? The Bible says Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. In other words, one of the outstanding characteristics of the last day church, we just read about it, started off with it in Haggai chapter 2, one of the last day characteristics of the church, the people of God, now it doesn't mean everybody that's saved, but those that are walking in the Word, those that are living their lives by the Word and doing what God said to do, one of the outstanding characteristics of that church, that people, will be the glory of the Lord. So Moses says the same thing that I would say, that hopefully you would say, show me your glory. And God says, oh no, absolutely not. Heaven forbid. What are you talking about? Moses, now you've crossed the line. Of course not. God says, well, okay, here's how we're going to do this. God answers and says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. So I want you to notice that the glory of the Lord and the goodness of God must be one and the same. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So that must mean the glory of the Lord or the Spirit of the Lord will always proclaim the name of Jesus. They've got to be the same things. God had not changed subjects either. Then he goes further and says, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. The word gracious means to stoop down to in kindness. God says, I will bend over in kindness to who I will, and I will show mercy. The word mercy there means to have compassion or to show love toward. So what does the glory of God do? It displays God's kindness and God's love. All this is part of what Moses said, I want to see. I want to see your glory. God says, okay, I'll make my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. And then he said, verse 20, then God says, all right, now we've got to make sure that there's a, that, that can, in other the only way for this to be done, we've got to do it in a special way. He said, you cannot see my face for there shall no man see me and live. Now why is that? Because Moses is living in a sin-filled flesh. He's not saved. He's living above the Old Testament curse by walking with God and keeping the law, but he's still unsaved. He's not saying that no man can see his face once you're saved. He's saying no unsaved person can see his face. I don't know about you, but I'm planning on seeing the face of God. Well, how's that going to happen? Easy. I'm saved. 
Jesus has already made a place for me. So what happens here is God gives him a type of the thing that Jesus has already done for you. He says, no man can see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. Folks, this is what Jesus is. It's a place by him. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. There is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. Jesus is the rock that the church is built upon. And it shall come to pass while my glory passes by. My goodness, the proclaiming of the name of the Lord, the graciousness or kindness of God, and the mercy of God. As these things pass by, that I will put thee in the cleft. That means a, a hollowed out place. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover your hand cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I'll take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Folks, I want you to understand something. Moses could not experience this except he is in the presence of God. Now, God is talking to him about something. uh, Well, how do I say this? We know that when this takes place, Moses is in the tabernacle. He's in the cloud in the tabernacle. There's no cleft of the rock there in the tabernacle. So he says, I'll show you my glory. He's saying, I've got a specially prepared place. That specially prepared place is a type of Jesus. It's the hollowed out place where God puts his hand on him. Now, it's interesting. There's a lot of things we could talk about here. But God talks about his face. He talks about his hands. He talks about his back parts. So God must have a face. God must have a hand. God must have back parts. Well, if you got back parts, you must have front parts. Sounds a lot like the human body, doesn't it? We're made in the image of God, not just in the fact that we're spirit beings, but we look like God. So here's the point I want you to see. Moses could only see the glory of God when, when, when he's in Christ. That's what the cleft of the rock is a type of. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, therefore, if any man be in Christ, therefore, if any man be in Christ, therefore... If any man be in Christ. That's me. Is that you? He is a new creature. The other translations say a new creation. I like one translation that says he's a new species of being. What species of being is that? The one that can see the face of God. He is a new species of being. Old things have passed away and behold all things have become new. What does that mean? That means since you are in Christ, you can talk face to face with God. You can remind him of his word. You can get God to honor your words under those conditions and you can see His glory. You can see His glory. We see the glory of God around here more in healing school than any other place. There are times where, and I think the reason for that is because we have a specific purpose for that service. There are, uh, well, there are many examples, many illustrations I could give you, stories I could tell you about this. But uh, it's been about, um, oh, maybe a year and a half ago now, something like that. There was a fellow that, uh, that was in the hospital. Uh, I think he was over at Hogue Hospital. And uh, somebody came and visited him. He had been uh, diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer. And, uh, and, and he was, the cancer is just eaten up on the inside of him, and, or his insides were eaten up with the cancer. And, and uh, so the doctors had told him, you know, there, there's really not anything that we can do. But somebody had come by to visit him. I don't know who it was. It wasn't somebody in our church. But they knew something about the things of God. And they had seen our, our television program. And uh, happened to see some things that we had aired you know, from healing school. Which we do from time to time. And uh, so anyway, this person came in and was talking to them. I, I think there was a, an acquaintance. Uh, well, thinking back on the story, it wasn't even a friend of theirs. It was somebody that came to visit the other person that was in the room. 
And so anyway, they wound up talking, and, and so this person, long story short, this person started telling him about that, uh, that healing is uh, a part of what Jesus has done for us. Even prayed for him to, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior in the room, and then told him about our church, that we had healing school. Well, this guy basically checked himself out of the hospital. Doctors couldn't do anything for him, so why stay there? So he checked himself out of the hospital and came to healing school. I'd never seen him before, didn't know anything about him. But we were having just a normal healing school service, and uh, some way or another we just began to worship God at the end of the thing, and the glory of the Lord said and uh, began to enter into the, to the service. Now, there are times where, where it's, uh, well, it manifests in different ways. Let me just say it that way. There are times where it seems to be a, a light haze or a mist, but there are other times where it gets stronger and it's like a cloud. And, and, and it's, um, uh, it's, have you ever been to the mountains where you see the, the, the clouds hanging over the mountains? It, there's a real distinct line it looks like sometimes where, the, where it's like that. Well, that's what it was like this night. There was a real distinct line just right over the heads of the people. Everybody was standing up. And it was just right over the heads of the people. And so I was worshiping God, wasn't really paying any attention to anything, just, you know, okay, kind of checking out, okay, Lord, is there anything you want us to do? And finally I opened my eyes, and when I opened my eyes, I saw that that cloud was hanging over the heads of the people. And so I said something. I said, the glory of the Lord's here. Well, you don't have to be too smart to figure out what the glory of the Lord is there for in healing school. You know, I mean, if the glory of the Lord appeared here at this point in time, I'd have to ask, Lord, what is it you want to do? In healing school, I pretty much have it figured out. Here's what God wants to do. So I just said, the glory of the Lord is here. I said, it's hanging over your head like a fog. So I said, if you need anything from the Lord, just reach up and take it. Well, I saw this gentleman. There were several people all over the room that, were, that reached up, and they uh, re reached up to take hold of whatever, by faith, whatever the healing they need, whatever they needed from the Lord. But I saw this fellow, tall fellow, I saw this fellow, he reached up, and when he reached up, I saw his hand go in. Now, it was, it was, I recognized that there was something unusual because the way that I saw his hand go in was different than the way I saw other people reaching up. And so it, it caught my attention just to keep my eye on what was going on. Not that the Lord spoke to me about anything or that I had any kind of knowledge about anything. I, I'm, most of the time, I don't know what's going on any more than anybody else does. But something about that caught my attention, so I, I, I just kept looking. I just kept watching this fellow. So he stuck one hand up into the thing and, and uh, kind of eased up a little bit. And then you could tell he just got bolder and stuck his hand up. And then the next he stuck both hands up. And, uh, and like I said, I hadn't seen this guy, didn't know anything about him, didn't know who he was. And uh, first time I'd ever seen him in our church. And so uh, after the service, uh, I shook hands with him. And, uh, and he, said, uh, he said, I really enjoyed the service. He said, first time I've ever been in a church like this. I said, oh, where'd you come from? And he said, well, uh, somebody told me about you at the hospital. And that's all he said. So he, uh, he thanked me for the service, said goodbye, said, well, I hope to see you again sometime. And so he wound up coming back. And the testimony that he gave was the next time he went back to the doctor, the next week when he went back to the doctor, the cancer had disappeared. Completely disappeared. Doctors couldn't believe it. They ran this guy ragged in the hospital for three days doing tests on him. They were determined they're going to find this cancer. <laughs> and they couldn't do it. It had completely disappeared. Absolutely. Completely disappeared. So next time he came back to church, he told me the story. No big deal. Didn't make any special fanfare of it. I mean, he, first time he'd been to a church, he thought this happened every week. <laughs> so he tells me the story, and, and I rejoice with him. Hey, this is great. I was, and I asked him a question. I said, well, listen. I said, let me ask you something. I said, 
I'm standing up on the platform and I saw the glory of God, but I saw you put your hands up in the, into the glory. And I said, look like you were tentative to begin with. And he, he, then he took it from there and he said, yeah. He said, this all sounds kind of weird to me. He said, I just have gotten saved. He said, I, I don't know anything about this stuff. He said, so when you said the glory of the Lord's here, I opened my eyes, I started looking around. He said, I didn't see anything except the ceiling. He said, and so I, I heard you say, if you need anything from the Lord, just reach up and take it. And I thought, well, this is dumb. He said, then there was something on the inside of me that said, he just told you the glory of the Lord is here. Why do you want to argue with what he told you? He said, I stood there for a few minutes having an argument on the inside of myself. And finally, the thing, the, 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 he said, the voice on the inside of me said, you've already admitted you don't know anything about this. He does. Shut up and do what he said. I like this. That's the presence of the Lord that goes before you. I like this. He talks my language. So he said, at that point, he said, I did. I just said, oh, well, all right, whatever. What's it going to hurt, you know? He said, as soon as I stuck my hand up, he said, I felt something. He said, my hand started to tingle. He said, when that happened, he said, I realized the glory of the Lord must really be here. Whatever that is, it must really be here. And he said, if you need anything from the Lord, just reach up and take it. He said, so then I stuck my, other hand, I stuck my hand up straight. He said, I felt more and more of it. He said, something started going through my body. He said, at that point, I stuck both hands up. And he said, you know the end of the, the, end of the story. I wonder how many times the glory of the Lord is here when we don't see it. See, we are so physically oriented that unless something happens, unless there's some physical evidence, then we think, well, you know, just church. Folks, I don't believe it's ever just church. If it's ever just church, we need to quit coming. Because there's certainly no reason for you to come to hear what I have to say, just as an individual. Now, if what I'm saying is by the Spirit of God, then you might want to take a listen to that. But if it's ever just me... Let's do something else. I'm not that smart. And I know the difference between what I get and what God gives me. I know the difference between what I think and what God impresses me to say. I know the difference in when I try to come up with some sermon or when God gives me something to speak. And if it ever becomes anything else than God trying to get something across to us through people, then we need to go do something else. I mean that sincerely. Some people might think, well, Pastor Mike, you're telling people to leave your church. Well, if you don't recognize the supernatural aspect, then go somewhere where you do. Because church was never meant to be just a gathering. It was never meant to be just, a, just some other meeting place. I mean, we go to Kiwanis Club or Lions Club or anything else. Church is a supernatural thing, folks. It's a place where the glory of God is. Whether we see it or not. But what I want you to get to, well, let me turn with me to Zechariah chapter 10. Let me close with this final scripture. What I want you to see is that you can expect to see the glory of God for yourself. The glory of God is not just something that, that happens in special occasions or, or, or under certain circumstances when God's wanting to specially move. The Bible says that you can see the glory of God because you are in Christ. You can take the same position as Moses to do whatever work God's given you to do. Now, your work is not the same thing as Moses is. It's not the same work as mine is. It's not the same work as your neighbor's is. But whatever work God has given you to do, and he's given everybody something to do, whatever that is, you can expect to see the glory of God in it. Because you're in Christ. You can talk face-to-face -face with God. You can do everything that Exodus 33 shows us as an example that Moses did. Everything. 
You can do it just the same as he did. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 1. We've been praying this, uh, well, I've been praying this since the church started, but specifically for the last, uh, well, going on five years, I guess, or close to five years anyway, uh, in, he, in uh, prayer school on Sunday evenings. Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 1. Notice what it says. Here's God's instruction, Old Testament instruction to his people. He said, ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Now, the latter, time of the latter rain has got to be the last days. Folks, if anybody is in doubt that we're in the last days, I don't know what to tell you. It's so obvious that we're in the last days. There is not one prophecy yet to be fulfilled before Jesus comes. The only thing that is necessary to be done for Jesus to come back is for the shout to take place from heaven. That's where we are. There is not one. There, there, in times past, there have been prophecies that Jesus can't come back until this is fulfilled. There's not one left. Not one. We could hear the shout from heaven at any time. <clears throat> there are some things that the Bible says will take place toward the end regarding the tribulation period of time that can take place after the church is gone. So there is nothing that has to be done before the church leaves. Nothing. Now, I don't believe it's time for us to go yet because I don't believe that the glory of God is seen in the way that God wants it to be before we get out of here. But there is no scriptural reference. There is no scriptural fulfillment, a prophecy to be fulfilled to keep Jesus from coming. We're in the last days. And notice what it says. It says, ask of the Lord rain. Now, rain's always a type of the Holy Ghost in Scripture. So it's saying, ask for a move of God in the last days. Ask for a move of God in the last days. Ask for a move of God. Now, this is something you can talk face-to-face with God about. I have been for a long time. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So what's God going to do if we ask? So the Lord shall make bright clouds. Seeing all the things that the Bible says about the glory of God being brightness, clouds, uh, glistening, smoke, fog, and so forth, what do you think these bright clouds are? It's a manifestation of His glory. One translation says, uh, well, not the translation, but the original word for bright cloud. This translated bright cloud from the Hebrew means lightnings. It's a manifestation of the glory of God. It's a manifestation of the power of God. Ask of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds. In other words, so shall he reveal his glory. And he'll make showers of rain. Now what is that? That means the Holy Ghost will begin to fall from heaven. The Holy Ghost will begin to fall from heaven. The Bible talks about the Holy Ghost sometimes falling. In Acts chapter 10 it says the Holy Ghost fell on all those that heard Paul preach at Cornelius' house. The Holy Ghost fell. There's a moving of the Holy Ghost from within us, but also there's a falling of the Holy Ghost too. I've never been in a position, never been in a situation, never had the experience to see the Holy Ghost fall. I've seen the Holy Ghost move in a lot of ways, but I've never seen the falling of the Holy Ghost. But the Bible says that's something that will happen as a result of our prayer. I've always focused on the fact that this is the Holy Ghost moving from within us, and that's certainly true because the Holy Ghost doesn't live in heaven. The Holy Ghost lives in the church. So the Holy Ghost to move, he's not going to move from heaven. He's going to move through us. But there is still a falling of the Spirit of God. I have to assume that that means a heaven-initiated spirit move or move of the Spirit. So the Lord shall make bright clouds, a manifestation of his glory, and give them showers of rain. I'm looking for the Holy Ghost to fall like rain to everyone grass in the field. What's it going to produce? It's going to produce people being one into the kingdom of God. 
It's going to produce people being brought into fellowship with God that were out of fellowship. It's going to, be, it's going to produce people being filled with the Holy Ghost and healed and see the demonstration of God's glory. But you've got a part in that. The Bible says it doesn't happen unless you ask. Let's all stand. I'm sorry for going long on this, but I've got to tell you, I could, I could just keep talking about this forever. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, that means you're in the cleft of the rock, you are a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being. What is that new species of being? It's one that can see the face of God. That was the only requirement, that was the only condition that God said Moses had to fulfill or God had to do for him, literally, for Moses to be able to see his glory. That means you can see it now. That means you can see it in your own life. That means we can see it collectively. We can see it together in the church. That means we can see it in the earth in these last days. Let's pray that. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that we are in Christ. Thank you that we are able to see your face. We're able to speak to you face to face just like Moses did. We're able to spend time in your presence, Father, and allow that glory to shine through our face just like it did through Moses. Show us your glory, Father. Show us your glory. You said that if we had asked for the rain in the time of the latter rain, you'd show us your glory. So we ask you for the rain. We ask you for a move in the Holy Ghost to bring about the precious fruit of the earth, not the precious fruit of America. Father, whatever it takes for the American church to wake up, let it be so. If it takes persecution, let it be so. If it takes hard places and hard times, economically, politically, socially, let it be so. Father, we look to you as our answer. We look to Jesus as our Savior, not to any man. So, Father, let it be. Whatever is necessary for the church to arise and to awaken, let it be. We ask you for the rain. We ask you to move in nations. We ask you, Father, to, to shine upon people just like you found the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Lord Jesus, appear to those who are hungry to know the truth. Lord, show us the brightness of your glory. We pray that in these last days it would be even as it was spoken. You said, Father, that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. We're holding you to that promise, Father. We're holding you to that. We pray that the glory of God would be seen in Colombia. We pray that the glory of God would be seen in Costa Rica. We pray that the glory of God would be seen in Argentina. We pray that the glory of God would be seen in Cuba. Oh, Father, let your glory be known. Let your glory be known. Bright clouds, lightnings, a manifestation of your presence, a manifestation of your power. Father, show us what it is to be like those that dedicated Solomon's temple. To be in one accord, to raise our voices in singing, to raise our voices in worship, to be of the same mind, the same heart, the same attitude, to provide an atmosphere for your presence to manifest. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For causing the rain to fall upon us. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Lord, we worship you. 
We magnify you. You mean more to us than anything else. You are more precious than silver and gold. Your word is more precious than silver and gold to us too, Father. The only things we desire of this earth, Father, is so that we can fulfill your plan and purpose. Oh, Father, we bless you. We magnify your holy name. We glorify you, Jesus. King of kings and Lord of lords. Soon coming king. We bless you, Lord Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just a taste. Just a touch. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for manifesting yourself, Lord. Say this after me. I will see the glory of God. I will see the glory of God in my life. I will see the glory of God on my job. I will see the glory of God in my family. I will see the glory of God in my church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.